What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to Blue Mountain Village Voices. Welcome, Mayor Soever, to the Blue Mountain Village Voices podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be here, Andrew. I'm wondering if you could start off for us and just give us a sense of what your history and connection is to the town of the Blue Mountains and area. Well, I've been coming here for 65 years now, maybe a bit longer. I may have even been conceived here. I don't know. My father built a cottage here in 1955 at Christie Beach kind of halfway between Meaford and Thornbury. And what attracted him to the area was that this was where land was cheap. And being a recent refugee from Eastern Europe, obviously funds were tight. And so he and one of his good friends built a cottage, which we shared with the other family. We each had two bedrooms and I spent all my summers here as a child. And I fell in love with the area and I fell in love with rocks, which led me to a career in geology. So whenever I could, we came back to the family cottage, spent a lot of time here. And then when I had my own family with the kids, we were here quite often. And, you know, I really loved it. So as life moved on and I came closer to the end of my career, I decided to move up here in 2009. I was still running a mining company in Sudbury. So whether I was commuting there from Toronto or here didn't really make any difference, except I didn't have to fight the traffic getting in and out of Toronto. So this was much preferable. So then I moved up here permanently and got involved in the community and bringing curling back to the community. And then somebody said, well, we should have a political discussion group at the corner over a few beer and one thing led to another, and that out of that evolved the citizens' pages, which I helped write. And so we got involved in a bunch of different political things. And during the last election, people said I should run. And, you know, I had become a little frustrated with the way things were going. This town was just recently, the last census informed us that we were the second fastest growing community in Canada, not Ontario, but Canada as a whole. Wow. So we have a lot of challenges. And I thought that maybe with my experience running a mining company, that we do a lot of projects, we do a lot of public engagement. We, mm. you know, there is a transferable skill set there. So people convinced me to run basically. And I did get elected. So the rest is history. The rest is history. That's fascinating. And you're right. There is a lot of transferable skills and experiences in many different sectors that can lead into public life and volunteerism. And, and good for you for not only seeing that, but wanting to bring those skills to the table. Before we jump a little bit ahead and talk about serving as mayor in the community, you know, you mentioned something about falling in love with rocks. And when I have had many of my friends come to visit me here, or many of my nieces or nephews, we're always at the beach or beaches or parks, and they're obsessed with the rocks. So were those the same rocks that kind of inspired you? All those fossils and all of that, the shale, et cetera? Yes, exactly. So obviously, the shale in the outcrop is protected, but there are a lot of boulders of shale scattered throughout the community. And in fact, more recently, people have dug up shale and used it as fill in a couple of properties along Highway 26. So there are excellent rock collecting opportunities where you're not damaging the fossils in place that you see in the shale at Craigleith because that is a protected area. So there's a lot of different fossils around. And even in the sand, you get tiny crinoid stems, which have formed little circles with little holes in the middle. And as kids, yeah. we used to make bracelets and necklaces out of them by just pushing fishing line through the middle of those little, <laughs> little rings. So there is a lot of nature around. And of course, not only the rocks, but the wildlife and there's a little creek beside the family cottage and every spring there's a lot of water rushes down there. So as you walk up the creek, 
there's fresh rocks every year, different mm-hmm. rocks that have been rolled over and tipped. And That's right. So there's lots to see. The landscape reveals itself. So having, having spent, you know, many decades and memories and experiences here for you, what do you think some of the most significant changes have been in terms of that place you remember as a child to today? Well, certainly there's been a lot of change. When we were kids, we used to walk up to the railroad track and kids had a little more freedom those days. And we we were allowed to walk into town. And my mom just said, yeah, just listen carefully for the train. It wasn't (laughs) stay off the tracks. It's take responsibility (laughs) and listen carefully so that you got lots of time to get off the side. So, you know, between Thornbury and here, there was a Hoggart's farm and he had a big black dog that used to chase us. That's now the Laura Bay development and mm. golf course. So certainly life's a lot different. Then you come into Thornbury. There wasn't a lot here. The grocery store was where the pharmacy now is. So you can imagine it wasn't very big. You know, so certainly there's a lot more shops. Main Street looks quite a bit different. A lot of high-end boutiques there now and the bakery. There was Meaford City Bakery at the time, and the truck came and delivered the bread to the house. Mm. And then the Thornbury Dairy delivered milk once a week. So we never had a car at the cottage all week because my dad was in the city working. And so we looked forward to when the milk truck and the, the especially the Meaford Bakery truck came. So things are changed. It was largely a farming community. And you didn't look out of place if you were wearing your, your green rubber boots and, and work pants uh, on the main street. I know now when I go into some of the stores uh, dressed like that, people kind of look sideways and uh, wonder <laughs> if I really belong in there. But certainly it's changed as any area changes. But I think all in all, they, it's it's different, but, you know, the nature is still here. The the opportunities to go out on the bay and fish, the cross-country ski, a hike, downhill ski, of course. The village has sure changed since I was a kid. I'll bet, yeah. Maybe at that time, uh, a chalet, a couple of outbuildings, and still some skiing, but not the same development you have today. Yeah, certainly not, and not not a village. I remember learning to ski on Tranquility on skis that had been abandoned at a local hotel owned by a friend of ours. Somebody had run into one of the towers and my dad got the skis and he repaired them. And he says, if you want them. And there I was about 14 years old on 210 centimeter skis. So <laughs> needless to say, it took me a while to get down the, the hill the first time. And there was a lot of falling involved, but Certainly now with, you know, the ski lessons and the, and the parabolic skis and everything that's available, it's quite a bit easier. It was a quieter time, but certainly there are more activities now. It sounds I remember like going to scenic caves as a kid and, you know, it was a cave and a, a little booth, but there was no bridge. There was no zip lines, you know, a lot of stuff got added. So but what was core is still here. And I think that's what's so great. And at the same time, what is so worth protecting, isn't it? Yes. And then that's really the crux of it. Change will happen. And it's how we manage change and keep the things that we treasure about the community. That's what's important. For sure. Blending the two. So you mentioned that when you were uh, encouraged to run for council, and, and I remember some of those Citizen Pages meetings at the Corner Cafe and joining you and others for some really great discussion. And I, I found it really engaging. That was around the time I was relatively new to the community. And I found it a great outlet to just you know meet people and, and particularly meet people who have longer roots than I had here. And I really appreciated that. What was it about at that time that you thought really needed to change? Was it just that community consultation spirit that you had so much experience with? Were there other things that you thought were really important to layer on at that time? We were evolving from a a fairly small community with fairly simple problems, but with all the development that was coming in here, you have to recognize that the town of the Blue Mountains is is a corporation with over three hundred million in assets and spends fifty million a year and has over a hundred employees. And I just felt that we could do better in running this corporation. 
There was, you know, a number of issues. One was the infrastructure, of course. You know, I felt we were falling behind, particularly when it came to the Thornbury Wastewater Treatment Plant. Uh, the other thing that I had noticed was in going on the MPAC website, you know, you, you get that opportunity to look at other assessments on about my property. Mm-hmm. I noticed that there were a number of developments where houses had been constructed and had been up for several years, yet we're still being assessed that vacant land. So there Mm -hmm. seemed to be a huge amount of missing assessment that we just hadn't, for whatever reason, captured. So, you know, I just thought that we need to do better because we're faced with a lot of challenges here and we have a very good staff and council was trying hard, but, you know, they got distracted by infighting among each other and You know, I just thought that we can do better and we need to do better. It's a huge challenge. We have a number of challenges here. We're growing very fast. Our service delivery is kind of focused as much toward Collingwood as Owen Sound. Our police detachment is actually with Collingwood, Blue Mountains Detachment. It's one detachment, but we have our own little substation here. So it's a very difficult situation for the community in that you're probably in the wrong political structure in terms of the the county in that you know gray county tends to be owen sound centric but simcoe county is so large that you don't want to be swallowed up there either but when it comes to things like county old folks homes the closest long-term care home is in markdale which is half an hour away the others are in owen sound and durham which are so far away that, you know, our seniors deserve to be closer to home as they live out their lives and so that their friends and neighbors can visit. I think that's not unique to here. It's probably accentuated here in that political boundaries were drawn 100 years ago and service delivery and how people live has evolved over that period of time. And, And perhaps if we were drawing boundaries now, we'd be drawing something completely different based more on how people live their lives. You take all of those factors and then you insert in the middle of a four-year term, an unprecedented hundred-year pandemic. You know, it's it's a lot to manage. And I think I'm glad you shared those numbers, you know, $300 million in assets, $50 million annual budget, employees of a hundred. I mean, that's a big business, no matter how you slice it and dice it. And I think it's really easy for local businesses, community members we tend to focus on what we need and what we're looking for or what our gaps are, but that is a big engine to have to facilitate and you got to bring expertise to the table. And we're a community at a crossroads. And I think maybe people don't appreciate just how big that is and what is required. So I'm glad you shared that. I'm wondering, looking back, and obviously we don't have time to sort of talk about all the different things that you and council have done. I know, I know that a lot of momentum has been made I'm wondering from your perspective, you know, serving as mayor, what has been the most rewarding part of that job for you personally? A lot of it is being able to do things for people, particularly our seniors. You know, the pandemic brought its own challenges and, you know, it's really gratifying to see how the community pulled together and and you sat on our community recovery task force as well. So, I think the work we were able to do there and bringing vaccination clinics to our uh, Beaver Valley Community Center. One of the things, again, because mm. Gray County is Owen Sound centric, if you looked at their vaccination committee, it was largely based in other parts of the, the county and not here. So, again, because a lot of our citizens actually have their doctors in Collingwood, they're in a different family health team. We have that boundary there as well. So, There wasn't a very successful deployment of vaccine initially. And so I want to thank the medical officer of health for working with us and particularly Dr. Remyard, who volunteered personally and with his nurse practitioner, uh, Melody Fox, they gave out over 10,000 shots over the period of the pandemic. And we did that through volunteers and setting up these clinics at the community center. And of course, Dr. Remyard from his office here. So it's nice when you're able to do that and make a difference in people's lives. Uh, I heard from many seniors that, you know, they were so happy that they could get their vaccine so close to home rather than having to drive to Owen Sound. And early on in the pandemic, I even heard of people driving as far as Perry Sound to get their shots. So 
it's nice to be able to do those kind of things. And that's what's really satisfying about serving as mayor, is being able to make a difference in people's lives. And I think we've done a lot of great things here with the staff as well. We brought in like a performance appraisal process where people are able to earn bonuses for achieving more than the norm, and which is pretty unusual in the municipal space. Mm-hmm. And everybody seems to like it. Thinking and more like a like a business. Yes, yeah. there are differences, of course, but yeah. because of the process. But it was confirmed once we got into it that we were behind in capturing assessment. The three years prior to this term, we were only capturing 65% of the value of our building permits in assessment. The last three years, we've averaged 169%. So how can you capture more than the the value of the building permits? It's because we were playing catch up. The first year was 272%. So this represents $581 million in assessment, which adds $2 million to the revenue of the town every year, as well as $2 million to the revenue of, for the county. So we were able to negotiate getting our first year overage back from the county for attainable housing. So it shows that, you know, with a little bit of push from council, MPAC works a lot harder. I still remember they they sent us their canned presentation for our first meeting. And I said, yeah, but I got these other questions as well. Like, mm. what can we do to capture this? And they said, oh, okay. And they did. They dedicated somebody and, and we found a huge amount of assessment. I mean... Yeah. You're bringing a bit of a disruptor mindset into some sort of bureaucratic entities. That's It's good. Those sorts of things are needed. Did you find there was a lot of pushback? Did it take a while to you know, get alignment on that as a strategy? Or what do you think held people back from doing that for so long? Well, I, I think, you know, MPAC is fairly lean machine throughout Ontario. Like if you actually look at and I'm a numbers guy, so I played with a lot of statistics and spreadsheets over the last three years. I'll bet. But if you really look at what we spend on MPAC, it works out to like $30 a year on every property in Ontario or something like that. Well, how do you keep up all that assessment with that? Yeah. So they're a fairly lean machine. And of course, how your staff works with MPAC is also important. Like the minute a building permit is closed off, then you got to send it to them and advise them and then keep tracking and saying, look, we sent you that building permit. Why has it's been closed off? People have moved in. Why is this still assessed as vacant land? Because you can look back two years, but if you leave things for more than two years, then you've lost it forever. So it's important that in order to ensure that everybody pays their fair share of taxes, that everybody is taxed and the changes happen when they really happen and not years later. So that was an easy one, actually. There's been a number of ones that are tougher, like getting government databases quality controlled. As I work with this data, I, I find lots of mistakes in it. And I'm going, well, why? how is it that you can have a municipality report zero on their building permits for a year? Like, it's wrong. And somebody should pick that up and say. Yeah, there's got to be an alarm when that comes. <laughs> Some alarm's got to trigger someone to look at that, that when that's the outcome for sure. Well, I'm well known at the province now as the troublemaker. You know, you find these things and you say, we can do better, not only at this level, but also at the provincial level. And I think the thing that was a real shocker to me is when the second phase of COVID funding was rolled out as application based and only 48 out of 444 municipalities applied. And I'm going, well, either they didn't have costs or they didn't have the wherewithal to apply. And it's a real concern. And that's why it's important that people look carefully at their municipal government and elect people, not because they're popular, but because they're competent. It's easy to be popular. You just tell everybody what they want to hear, but then you end up doing nothing good for the community. So I've always said, if you're not raising a few eyebrows, you're probably not relevant. You're not pushing hard enough. But I think I can relate to this sort of sphere of work that you've been engaged in, because I would say here in the village with our stakeholders, particularly over the pandemic, you know, we've spent so much time reevaluating what we normally do. And, you know, we found a lot of areas where there were things we should have been doing years ago. And the pandemic kind of gave us a, a reason or, you know, kind of a kick in the pants to focus on it. 
And so I think sometimes we look so far afield to try to change things when in fact, there's a lot you can do closer to home and you just got to focus on it. It's good. I think many, many entities have been going through that. And I'm glad to know that the town has been taking that on under your leadership. So congratulations. We've certainly brought in a lot of things that were already in the process, but we've accelerated. It's like our building inspectors having access to all the building plans on their iPads. So they don't have to come back to the office to look at plans and write their reports. They can make their notes right when they're on site. And then it's in the system right away. And then we can fire that off to MPAC and, you know, get the properties reassessed in a timely manner. So it has accelerated a lot of change. Mm -hmm. And of course, what helped was that there was government funding from the upper levels to support those changes to become more efficient as well. And sort of like integrating new technologies and things like that. into yes. That's great. Back in 2018, BMVA and our members, so we launched a bit of a campaign during the election. We called it Vision 2025. And, you know, there were a number of things that we were sort of calling for. And, and I think, you know, many in the community were asking for similar things. But, you know, we were concerned about economic growth and diversification and, and making sure that, you know, people who live here and work here have opportunity. We were really concerned about the experience of living in the town of Blue Mountains, things like gridlock, transportation, public transportation. We were very concerned about the right mix of housing and attainable housing and the ability for people from all walks of life to live in our community. And then, of course, you know, we called for better communication, better leadership and governance. You know, now that we're sort of in the final year of that term of council, I'm wondering if you could sort of share with us your perspective on, on some of those needs and what has been achieved in those areas. Certainly the first on the economic growth and diversification, we've had a lot of growth, but we haven't had a lot of diversification. We've had some. The cideries have become mm -hmm. a nice addition and also farm markets. They've really evolved over the past few years. And some of that's helped with by the shop local program and the fact that people were looking for things to do that didn't involve travel. So diversification of the economy is still an important goal. Just in the last few months, we have had a couple of inquiries on people who want to bring kind of research and development type businesses here. We still suffer from a lack of employment lands and, and that mm. continues to be a challenge of service lands that are ready to be maybe host uh, an office building that would serve as a research center or something. So we are still working on that. The transportation infrastructure uh, Public transit remains a challenge. However, uh, we have made progress in engaging with the Ministry of Transportation on uh, Highway 26. I mean, for years, it's been viewed as the main east-west corridor for truck traffic as well as tourism-type traffic. And of course, those two, plus the pedestrians that are going to the beach and the, the cyclists and everything make for not a very good mix. So... We did with the additional traffic during the pandemic, we were able to convince the premier to lower the speed limit to 50, which I never thought I'd get 50, but he gave me 50. But in a way, it was very good because although it was a bit overly slow, it did bring the issue to the forefront of the ministry. And we were able to work out something that now is pretty good. It needs a few tweaks still, but it slowed the traffic down through the beach area. Not a lot, but enough to make it a lot safer for people who might be crossing the highway with their bikes or carrying stand-up paddleboards or things. So, And it's also allowed us to engage with the ministry on more of a regional transportation plan. One of the challenges is that the boundary between the Blue Mountains and Collingwood is also the boundary between two Ministry of Transportation districts. So planning on either side of that wall is done separately. Right. But as you know, in the village, most of your traffic comes from the GTA, but the central district traffic plan only brings it to the border. And then there's very little discussion in the West District plan of what we do with the traffic from the GTA. So the minister has come forward and there is now integration of those two plans. And I think it'll lead to some very good outcomes in the future of how we bring traffic across that boundary and move it on to places like Owen Sound. And I don't think 
we can do it all along Highway 26. There will have to be consideration of a bypass at some point. And I think those discussions we've been able to, by creating a crisis on Highway 26, bringing it to 50, we have been able to move those along and we'll Mm. need to deal with that sooner than later. The escarpment, of course, poses some challenges. And then the question is, what existing roads can you use and maybe upgrade to help move some of the uh, heavy vehicle traffic off of Highway 26 and make it more like a Niagara Parkway? Mm-hmm. And that's probably the best example. Like if you go from Hamilton to Fort Erie, you don't go along the waterfront and through Niagara on the lake and the wine country, you go along QE and then those other roads would serve the local communities. And although some communities in the past, like Collingwood, have worried that it's going to take away traffic and business, I don't think the people in Niagara-on-the-Lake, which is quite a ways from the QE, complain about that. They just have a nice, quiet community that draws more people because there isn't a main highway through it. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. What they focus on is delivering great experiences and the attributes of the destination and the people find it. So I agree. And, you know, I think of places like the Thousand Islands Parkway is another great example. What a beautiful drive and route. It's a little more leisurely. Of course, they have the benefit of the 401 spine, not not too far away, but there's some models out there, aren't there? Yeah, but those little towns along the St. Lawrence River, along Thousand Islands Parkway, their tourism and businesses haven't suffered by the fact that people are on. Because the people that are going from Toronto to Montreal in a hurry are not going to stop anyway. So Exactly. It's giving people choice. And then on the, on the housing side, I think there's been quite a lot of work done. Yes, and, and Andrew, I want to thank you for participating on our Attainable Housing Corporation board and We certainly transformed it and we moved that project forward, not as fast as I would have liked. And there's been a few bumps along the road by people who don't want it built and, you know, are trying to find every excuse to slow it down. I'll probably get in trouble for being so blunt, but there there are these people. And so, you know, I, I think we're moving in the right direction and we will, you know, hopefully have shovels in the ground by early next year on that. And then, On the other front, we have, of course, our campus of care, which we can talk about later, but that has an attainable housing component too. And attainable housing is is not social housing. It's for housing for young families, people who work everyday jobs, earn between 40 and 100,000. And because there's nothing available for under a million in the town of Blue Mountains. So you can't really come here if you're working a normal job. And so we're seeing that with young, even young police recruits. They start mm-hmm. off at 50 or 60,000. In three years, they're making 100. But, you know, they have a choice. They come out of police college and then they interview and then they say, well, where can I live? Uh, what's housing like? And if you've got a young family, maybe a wife, a couple of children, and you say, well, I want a three or four bedroom house. And you say, well, that's a million dollars. They say, well, holy, that's not, we're not going to have much of a lifestyle. There won't be any money left over. And where's my spouse going to work? And then you layer on things like getting a family doctor. And that's where I think it's so smart that you're looking at not only the attainable housing, but the link to the community campus of care, because it's about creating a whole community. And those things working together, I think, is partly why you're prioritizing them, right? To make the region more attractive. Not just for seniors, but for young working families too. Well, exactly. And when they can't move here, then you have issues with not only your police. The churches are having trouble finding ministers. Our fire department finding recruits for the volunteer fire department. You know, quite frankly, 
people that are retired and are buying a $2 million home are not lining up to volunteer for a volunteer fire department. That's right. Um, we need younger people that are, are in, in shape and energetic and, and want to make a few extra bucks with the fire department and, and gain some experience. And, you know, it's a very rewarding thing. You're, you're helping people, but you got to be able to afford to live here because it doesn't do you any good if your volunteer firefighters are living more than five or seven minutes from the fire hall. So, and I think it's interesting going back to the municipality, $50 million an annual budget, you know, massive amounts of infrastructure and assets. You know, I think there are some folks in the community who might say, well, why should a municipality invest any dollars or time or effort into something like attainable housing or healthcare? And I think the answer to that question is because it can save us costs in the long run and, and help grow a more robust community. That project should be a, a net zero over time. Is that how you'd look at it? Oh, yeah, for sure. And and that's why um, the really affordable housing that needs a lot of subsidy, uh, rent subsidies and whatnot, we leave that to the county. That is their purview. And we're looking at attainable rents that there is some investment by the, the town required, but the project should be self-financing in the long term. And then when you factor in things like every time you uh, hire a professional firefighter to replace a volunteer one, that's another difference is about $100,000. So, you know, and that's every year going forward, right? So yeah. it's a good investment in the future. And then obviously, if you can have in terms of why we're putting it in the campus of care, I mean, you can build whatever long-term care home you want, but it's the staff that look after the residents. It's not the building doesn't look after the residents, it's the staff. Of course. So you want to attract the best staff. You want to make sure they have a comfortable place to live at a reasonable cost. And you want to have daycare nearby so that if their children need daycare, there's a place where they can get them registered. I know right now, the waiting list is several years for daycare in Thornbury. So you want to bring all of these things in, but a lot of these things, they just require coordination and, and maybe a bit of seed money. But over the long term, they're a win for the community. Sure. Well, it, it's creating whole communities. And I, I feel like sometimes, you know, for a long time, the municipality, we sort of sort of fit somewhere in between, you know, we could rely on Collingwood for housing or transit or the county for this service or, or healthcare and other communities. And I think what we're seeing is a sense that the town of Blue Mountains wants to ensure that within its municipal boundaries, we've got the services for an entire community. And I think it's great to see that evolution. And it's, I think it's been, you know, standing back. And I think for yourself and your colleagues on council, you pro it's probably harder to see it sometimes, but I can tell you from the perspective of an outsider, that momentum and that shift is noticeable. And I think that's partly why we've seen that growth number that you're seeing in the town of Blue Mountains, number two in Canada. It's not just the great properties. It's not just the great tourism and experiences. It's also the philosophy of leadership and that will draw people. People want to live in those types of communities. So I think that's, that's something to be proud of. The way I look at it is there's a lot of people passionate about me. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> some in a good way, others, well, you know, but at least I know they all care. And some that's of them right. appear to be up all night thinking about me and posting about me on the social media. So I do feel concerned that maybe perhaps they're focusing more on me than their families. So, you know, I would urge them to go back to the families and uh, spread that focus around a little bit. Yeah, but yeah. you're right. I mean, everyone cares and is passionate about the community. I think that's a good thing. Switching gears a bit, you come from a very fascinating industry. And, you know, I think you've probably done work with a lot of different, uh, you probably intersected with tourism in many different aspects of your prior career. But I'm wondering... You know, you've certainly worked a lot more closely with small businesses, tourism operators, the mountain, you know, the, the Scandinavs, the scenic caves. Have you learned anything new about the tourism industry or our local tourism industry that maybe you hadn't thought of before? Or do you have a different perspective than you might have four or five years ago? Well, certainly I've learned a lot about the challenges they faced and particularly mm. through the pandemic. And one of the things that I probably wasn't as aware of is, is the staffing challenges and how that's all interrelated to, you know, having attainable housing. I mean, some of the people that, you know, are most vocal against attainable housing are the ones that I see in the restaurants all the time. Well, where are the people working in the restaurants supposed to live? 
certainly in terms of the businesses and the challenges they face in terms of staffing. And then the pandemic comes along and then they're opening and closing and opening and closing. And then you got CERB and then people are going, then we have the housing boom here where I think a lot of people that worked in the service industries are now construction labor because they were very short and they were never shut down really. So you know, the person goes, well, why would I rely on my restaurant or tourist industry job, which gets open and shut all the time when I could be doing construction labor, be it hanging drywall or, you know, just general labor on a construction site, earning more money and have a steady paying job. And I think there's been a huge migration of labor. And I know that you are facing a huge labor crisis at the village. And Certainly understanding that and the frustrations of the businesses, you know, we worked very closely with them in the health unit and we had excellent protocols in place. Mm -hmm. And yet some of these things that came down from the province, you're going, well, this is not an unsafe activity in the middle of the pandemic. Like for instance, skiing, you're outside, you have mask rules, which were very strictly enforced Mm -hmm. and you'd feel perfectly safe on the ski hill yet it gets shut down. And yet you have other congregate settings that are far closer together and indoors that don't seem to have the same restrictions. So I have a lot of sympathy for what the tourism businesses face. And the other thing in in being mayor, you hear from people all the time is, well, you know, what does tourism do for us? Yet these are the same people that are out on the golf courses and eating in the fine restaurants Mm -hmm. And they don't seem to realize that without the visitors coming here and providing that customer base that can support these fine establishments, they wouldn't be using them either. I asked one gentleman, have you ever been to the golf course in Bancroft? And I don't mean to you know, say anything bad about Bancroft, but, uh, but I have played around the golf there. And it is not like the golf course is here and they don't have the amenities. And I said, well, you know, you don't like tourism, but you seem to enjoy all the amenities that it brings to us. So, and I, I really think that I've learned a lot about how hard you and your team have worked, not only promoting the village, but the rest of the community, like the apple pie trail. Because really, when a person comes to the village, there's lots to do there, but there's lots to do around the community too, in terms of, of bicycling. And, you know, we have enough cideries and wineries. Now you could do a nice cider and wine tour and, you know, they stay a few extra days. So it's good for the village, but it's also good for the rest of our businesses because there is a place for people to stay when they're here. It is a total community experience and benefit. And I think standing back and hearing that feedback sometimes where many, there may be some in the community that kind of don't understand the linkages, it just makes me think the business community can do a better job of communicating, engaging. And I think it doesn't come from a perspective of not wanting to. I think small business owners, it's such an all-encompassing endeavor. And I think that sometimes those extra steps just don't get prioritized. But it's one of the things I've learned for sure is it's worth it to take the time to to listen and to engage more with the local community. We did our strategic planning exercise for the village and destination. And one of the things that we did really for the first time was actually host roundtables with the local community, specifically not weekenders, not village stakeholders, but like real locals to hear what, what they want. And I think the more of us that do that and the more businesses that carve out the time, I think it'll, it'll help. So we have a role to play on that, I think, as well. I've been to a number of communities across Ontario when, when I could during the pandemic. And one of the things that I realized was how fortunate we were in this community to have these assets and how much it did provide for the local community. And you know, I think it's, it's something we all wear as a badge of pride. But I, my hat goes out to the restaurateurs. Not that I want to pick any one of our member base, but the restaurateurs have had a really difficult time. Five different shutdowns, the disruptions in staffing, food costs and inputs. And when you look around our community, not too many restaurants closed. They've all hung in there. And I think it says a lot about their resilience and their passion for what they do. So I'm really proud of all of them in the community. I think they've done a great job and I know we'll all be there to continue to support them. Switching gears again, BMVA is an organization that definitely represents its members. And there are a lot of different groups like ours out there. You know, the the Ratepayers Association, the Chamber of Commerce, the Downtown BIA, 
the Georgian Triangle Development Institute. There's a number of stakeholder groups. I wonder if you could, you know, give us some feedback. You've heard, you've had a lot of us come and give deputations and advocate for what we look for. I'm wondering what advice might you have for organizations like ours for the future? How can we better contribute to the community? I would say, and, and your pro, your group is probably one of the better ones at this, is to help with the communication efforts. I mean, we as a town, I did a 10-year analysis on where our budget has changed in real dollar amounts, factoring in the amount of growth. And one of the biggest increases in the budget at the town has been the communications effort. And mm-hmm. Just this year, we instituted a regular newsletter that goes out with every tax bill. So twice a year anyway, you know, even the people that don't live here, they're going to see their tax bill. So they're going to open it up, obviously. And there, there is news from the town there. But I think for the groups, if they could engage with their memberships more, I know you do a, a very good job at it. Some of the other groups who shall go nameless seem to be uh, run by just a small number of people in the leadership and perhaps only get together once a year to meet with their membership. And that's where I think the groups like the, the Citizens Forum or, or the Citizens Corner initially, where you, you actually had meetings, and I'm not saying everybody should do them every two weeks, but you know at least quarterly, and sit down with the membership who want to come and meet and say, okay, this is what the town is doing. What should our position be? rather than having a small group of individuals being the only ones that are informed and and are making the decisions. And I know you do a much better job at communicating with your members than most, but that would be my message to the community groups is help us. I mean, even if you're critical, at least tell your membership you're critical and, and let's hear from them, explain to them what the issues are with what we're doing and ask them how they feel because a lot of people don't really know what the issues are. Like when, when they call me and I have a long chat with them and they go, oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what this is about because we do have a lot of complex issues. And, you know, what may seem to be a silly decision when you're not considering the big picture is, you know, after it's explained, this is why we need to do this. The attainable housing, which you've been involved in, of course, is a great example People are saying, well, why are we doing social housing? You know, we don't really have a need here. And we say, well, this is attainable housing for people who actually work in the community and are, you know, a vital part of keeping our community going, whether it be firefighters, teachers, PSWs, people who work in grocery stores. If you go to the grocery store and the shelves are empty, that could be because the supply chain is broken or it could be because they don't have anybody to put the stuff on the shelves. I mean, well, I think you're short, what, 800 employees right now? Uh, Yeah, I haven't uh, circled back with the team, but certainly as we were starting the season, it was well over 500 for sure at the beginning of the winter season, most definitely. Why are we doing attainable housing? But then they complain, well, you know, they're not getting good service. Yeah. Or I hear, I hear that often. Why aren't businesses open later on the weekends downtown? Well, that's why. It's one of the big reasons. Yeah. <laughs> when you only have the owner and, and perhaps a relative there, you know, there's only so many hours they can that's work. That's right. That's right. Well, I do. I think that's good advice. And I think for any association, not-for-profit member-based group, you, you have to be talking to your members. And, you know, I can tell you, I've had many instances, I'm, you know, we are members of most in the community. And I've often seen manifestos written and sent and communicated where I thought, hmm, I don't know that we were consulted on that. It doesn't seem to be how I would characterize the need. So I do think it's incumbent on us to do our homework. And you know, that's where you get credibility when you work with council and others is actually bringing real insights and the voice of your entire membership to the table. And we do want to hear from everyone, but it's a two-way street, right? Like we put stuff out there. It's not absorbed for whatever reason. And then somebody comes and says, well, I don't understand what you're doing. And a lot of times after we do something, they say there wasn't enough consultation. And then when you send them the timeline of when it came the first time, when it went to the public meeting, then it went to council and you go, well, you've had like five kicks at the can. 
And they say, well, yeah, but you didn't tell me. And we tried to do as good a job as possible. But as I was saying, communications is the one budget item that's increased by 800000 a year in real dollar terms between 2010 and now. I mean, there is a bigger effort, but yeah. you can shout everything from the mountaintop. But if there's nobody to listen, you can't force people to listen. You can try different ways. And and I think our communications committee has done a good job on a communication strategy. And we are using more tools like we are posting public meeting notices in yeah. the review, which is probably the only local newsletter and to do that, Linda had to start publishing bi-weekly because the legislation requires that. Talk about a great community champion, someone who runs a business and has set up a publication like that, such diligence. It's, it's very valued too. It's impressive. Oh, yeah. It's really the thing that I find most people get their information mm-hmm. from. So, you know, of course, one of the challenges in that communication front is we have a lot of full-time residents, but we have a lot of residents who are here somewhere in between. They might be here on weekends or they're here seasonally. And I know that it can be more challenging to engage with those folks. Have you have you learned any insights on how to do that better since your time as mayor? Well, certainly the mail-outs that we're doing with the tax bills, you know, it's only twice a year, but we try to cover as many of the important topics as possible. And of course, through those mailouts, we also highlight the fact that council is now live streamed or archived mm. and recorded, you know, and we've told people, where can you find out about stuff? And certainly during the election, it's going to be a challenge again. It is not cheap to mail out to the people that don't live here. I mean, you can do a mass mailer and get everybody who has post offices here, but really you're looking at about a dollar an envelope to those here. Now, the good news is the number of seasonal residents is down. We were 49% seasonal residences in 2016. This census, we're now at 41%. So Interesting. Yes. That's a big shift. It is. It might not seem like it, but it is a big shift. Yeah. And I don't think we've captured all of it even. I think some people may still have their primary residence in Toronto, but they may be here five days a week instead of the other way around where they were just coming up on weekends. Now they're spending two days of the work week in Toronto and the rest of the time up here. So yeah, there's a new category, isn't there? There's the, uh, I work in Toronto, but I work remotely and I can spend most of my time in my home office. So it's, yeah, it's, it's always shifting and changing. Yeah. But in terms of the census, have they actually changed their primary residence as far as their health card and driver's license? Yeah. Yeah, who knows? Probably not. Do their driver's license because it's good for your insurance if you're up here rather than the city. Ah, good point. There you go. There's a tip, everyone. One of the things that I want to ask you, just as a bit of a final thought, is for those who might be considering, you know, it's election year, municipal municipalities across Ontario. Maybe I, like you, want to make a difference in the community. What advice would you have for someone who's thinking about running in a municipal election? Well, certainly anybody who's thinking of running could come in have a chat with me or one of the other counselors. I mean, if you want to learn about the council experience and and what you might be getting into, there's nothing better than hearing it from somebody who's been there. All of us on council now, it was our first term of council. So we were all neophytes. So we would have gone through this term, what a new council member might be going through next term. And certainly, as I said earlier, it can be very rewarding. You, You will make a difference. If you're into learning, it's a great learning experience. There's all kinds of things to learn about the planning act, the you know municipal act, the process procedure, anything you'd want to learn about or more. It is very rewarding. It is a lot of work as well. So you want to think about the commitment you're getting into. And I think the one thing, it's like going on a blind date that lasts for four years. I don't want to dissuade anybody, but the reality is, and unfortunately, this council has been very easy to get along with, most of us anyway, and so it has been a very enjoyable experience, but that is not always the case. So if you're thinking of running, you might want to also consider who else might be running and who you'd be working with for four years, because it can go both ways. That's very good advice. On behalf of the BMBA community, all of our members, the businesses, the resort, and in fact, the whole community, I, I want to thank you and council. 
you know, right from the get-go, I can tell you one of the things that I noticed right away was your personal desire to listen and to engage and to participate. And we saw that from many of the counselors throughout this term, and it's been very helpful. The pandemic support that this municipality provided, and sometimes all you could do was signal and say things like, we support our business community. We stand up for our secondary homeowners who are coming here, as opposed to some small towns which tried to you know, keep people away. I think you showed a lot of leadership and it made a big difference to the business community and those folks who rely on their properties here and their experience. So it really made a difference. I hope you're proud of that as you should be. And you know, one of the other things that I, you know, observing where we were a few years ago and where we are now, this council is leaving, I think, a pretty strong legacy. You've engaged and enacted things like a transportation master plan, community improvement plan for sustainability, other community improvement plans around attainable housing, the communications master plan, official plan review. A lot of things have been underway to create a roadmap for the future. And those things take time. And perhaps some might be frustrated that it might not happen quicker. But I think <laughs> me among them at times, no question. But I do think standing back and looking at it, there's a legacy and a framework that we can take and build from. And I think that is going to help us manage the next five and 10 years a lot better than it would have without them. And so I think those are all really great things. So I just want to thank you for that. And, and on a personal level, it's always great to chat. And I love the fact that not only do you listen, but you are not afraid to share with us the things we need to hear as well as the business community. And so that's always valuable. So thank you. Well, thank you, Andrew. And I want to thank you for, you know, you've been involved in a number of committees and also on the Attainable Housing Corporation. And there's seven members of council, but with the amount of work that needs to be done, we look to our committees to help with a lot of that. And I want to thank everyone that has been on a committee and has helped in the effort because we can't do it alone. We need the, not only the support of the community, but we need those people that are active on the committees to help us and our staff as we move forward. And, you know, I have to say that we do have a staff that is, is much better than most communities, and they're very engaged in moving our community forward. It's amazing their dedication and hard work that they put in, often in the last few years in very difficult circumstances. So, For sure. I, yeah, the word that comes to mind to me is very responsive and yes. great service, and I think that's amazing. Well, thank you so much, and I uh, look forward you, to speaking to you soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Blue Mountain Village Voices, a production of the Blue Mountain Village Association. For more, go to bluemountainvillage.ca. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at averyrich.com.